Good evening. Take your Bibles. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 4. One of these days when John points at me, I'm just going to shake my head no. (laughs) Today, even this morning, I was ridiculed. I am not going to name names, but her initials are Karen Varner. She ridiculed me and said that I used the word picking. Some of you are so southern, you didn't even hear it when I said picking. If you were picking the disciples, is what I said, apparently. Well, you're probably fixing to hear some more. (laughs) Daniel, Daniel, Nehemiah chapter 4. There is an attitude abroad today, particularly among certain segments of the Christian community, that if you are saved... And you're living right, nothing can or will ever go wrong in your life. That mindset is contrary to scripture, both that taught in precept and shown in practice. On one occasion, the Lord Jesus told his disciples to take a boat and cross to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They obeyed, and even as they obeyed, they encountered a terrific storm. Here they were, right in the center of God's will, doing expressly what they had been told to do, and there was a storm. On another occasion, the Apostle Paul saw a vision, beckoning him to cross over into Europe and to help them. He did so, and when he did so, he met with severe opposition. Trials, difficulties, even opposition come our way, even when we are in the center of God's will. It is worthy of note that although it was God's will for the walls of the city of Jerusalem to be rebuilt, God did not remove the opposition. We now come in the story of the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem to the place where we see how Nehemiah and the workers responded in the face of severe opposition. This chapter and the two following chapters will detail how this opposition was faced. In Nehemiah's response, we'll learn how we too can be effective in handling opposition. First of all, this evening, we want to look at Nehemiah's problem. Chapter 4, verse 1. But it so happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said... What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was by him, and he said, Whatever they build, even if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. As long as the people of God were content... With things the way they were, the enemy pretty much left them alone. But when they began to serve God and strive to bring glory to his name, the enemy became active. Over four decades ago, Alan Redpath said, When Christians dare to say that the only hope of the world is the gospel of God's redeeming grace, The whole force of modern civilization and education lines up against him. 
and says, you with your feeble prayer meeting, you with your silly little plan of getting people saved one by one, how can that possibly stand alongside our great socializing economic program in which the whole world can be revolutionized in a few years? You are a feeble lot. The world judges everything by size, by headlines, by imposing schemes, by vast advertisements, and pours contempt upon the little flock of God. They say you have no intellect, you are out of date, you have no money, you have no status. Whenever a work of God is begun, whether it's in someone's heart or in their home, Satan uses the method scorn. If people jeer at our Christian testimony today, it is because they have no argument against the gospel. The world will always be angry at any message which exposes sin. If a preacher dares to emphasize the truth that the New Testament requires repentance, that the gospel ruthlessly exposes our tragic condition and our utter bankruptcy, the world will always be angry with a message like that. I want you to note as we look at his problem, first of all, the motive for their opposition. If we're trying to do something worthwhile and we're being opposed, it is because we are achieving something. We should be encouraged by that. Why do people oppose success? Well, some oppose because they're jealous. Jealousy is a cause of disharmony among leaders in the Christian church. Though it is usually disguised as a doctrinal or a ecclesiastical disagreement, one will attack another because he is wrong in his eschatology or because he associates with liberals. But the real cause is jealousy of the other man's success. Some oppose because they're jealous. Some oppose others and their projects because they have a different agenda than they do. When a liberal group sues to have a manger scene removed from the town square where it has been for scores of years, it is not because the manger is a threat to them or because of jealousy, but because any display of religion is opposed to their secular agenda. Some groups want to drive away any visible signs of religion from life. Some oppose because they feel excluded. Sanballat, the governor of Samaria, that is the area of Palestine that we now call the West Bank. Tobiah is the representative of the country of Ammon, which today is known as Jordan. And in verse 7, we learn the coalition includes Arabs from the men of Ashdod. Ashdod is the part of what is now called the Gaza Strip. These people were and still are enemies of Israel. First of all, and fourth, some people oppose because they are suspicious of the motivations of those they oppose. Verse 19 of chapter 2, these men come against Nehemiah and they say, will you rebel against the king? Obviously, that was not the case since he had the king's authority, but they accused him anyway. 
and some opposition is instigated by Satan himself. It would be easy to blame all of Nehemiah's difficulties on Satan, but that's rather simplistic. Satan merely needed to exploit already existing concerns. It's easy for the people of God to blame all their problems on Satan. But the truth is that Satan usually does not need to invent problems. He merely exploits the ones we already have. Look with me then at the methods of opposition. The reason people... ridicule those they oppose aside from being easy is it is that it is demoralizing and frequently effective first of all they ridiculed the workers these they did by ridiculing their character by saying what do these feeble Jews think they are doing the word feeble means withered or miserable You may have run into someone in your life when you were trying to change something that was wrong in your life, and they say, well, who do you think you are anyway? You think you're better than us? Or perhaps someone has said, you you might have made a good start, but you'll never last. Next, they maligned their motives by saying, will you offer sacrifice? That taunt was a attack on their faith it's much like saying are these fanatics going to pray the wall up maybe you think God is going to help you why don't you go home and pray about it chuckle chuckle it will take more than prayer to rebuild this city it is important to note that Nehemiah regarded this as an insult not against him but against God himself And secondly, they not only ridicule the workers, they ridicule the work. The second part of verse 2 says, will they fortify themselves? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? And then Tobiah added his ridicule of their work, saying that even if a fox jumped on it, the whole wall would fall down. It is one of Satan's most satisfying victories when he can just laugh us out of doing work for God. I like what Theodore Roosevelt said. He wrote it way back in, well, it was a speech he delivered in 1899. He summed it up pretty well. He said, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man has stumbled or where the doer of deeds could have done it better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, who does not actually try to do the deed, who knows the great enthusiasm, the great devotion, and spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while he is daring to do something great. Far better it is to dare mightily to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to rank with the poor spirits who neither enjoy nor suffer much because they live in the gray twilight that knows neither victory or defeat. 
The second thing that we see is Nehemiah's prayer, beginning in verse 4. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to the land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. When we get busy for God and opposition comes, the first ingredient that will lead to success is intercession. Prayer has many beneficial effects. Not only does it enable us to vent our feelings, diffuse our anger, it also gives us the opportunity to discuss the matters with God and obtain a new perspective on our problems. We are troubled as modern Christians by the harsh and apparently vindictive prayer of Nehemiah. It sounds harsh when you read it. There have been many attempts to rationalize this prayer. Some do it by appealing to the original Hebrew, claiming that the verbs are predictive rather than imperative. Both an examination of the context and the quotes of them in the New Testament show them to mean exactly what they say. Some say that the inspiration of Scripture only guarantees the accuracy of what is being recorded, not divine approval for it. But then King David wrote most of the imprecatory psalms, they are called, and he was still called a man after God's own heart. And still others say the inhabitants of the Near Eastern lands were highly excitable and quick to invoke curse of God on anyone that they disliked. They further explain that these people knew nothing of God's grace. The truth, however, is that grace is found in both the New Testament and the Old Testament. I like the old Gaelic blessings. May those who love us love us, and those who don't love us, may God turn their hearts. And if he doesn't turn their hearts, may he turn their ankles so that they will be known by their limping. I like that. What can we learn from this? Well, others pour contempt on you and what what you're trying to do for God. What do you do? Take it to God. You don't have to ignore ill treatment from others. You don't have to deny that it's there or even take things into your own hands. Pour your heart out to God. Tell him if you are insulted and despised. What is too much for us is not too much for God. What overpowers us does not overpower God. What intimidates us does not intimidate God. And let God be your defender and your vindicator. The third thing that we see is Nehemiah's perseverance. Begins in verse 6 and runs through the end of the chapter. Verse 6 says, So we built the wall and all the entire wall was joined together up to its height, half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Nehemiah not only prayed, he persisted in the work. Intercession is not a substitute for initiation, but it is a prelude to it. Perseverance is a real test of faith. It is, the one, it is one thing to set a goal or an objective. It is quite another to persevere toward achieving it in the face of opposition. It is the opposition that tests our resolve. 
these people were able to raise to rise rather above the ridicule because they had a mind to work. Past President Calvin Coolidge said, Press on. Nothing can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are overwhelmingly powerful. Under his perseverance, we want to look at the curse of discouragement. The children of Israel with Nehemiah as their leader were facing what seemed to be insurmountable odds of completing the wall around Jerusalem. The enemies of the people of God had used sarcasm and ridicule. And when that had failed to stop the work, they threatened open opposition. Finally, the opposition had worn the people down and discouragement had set in. Who of us has not been discouraged in one form or another? Maybe you're facing discouragement right now. Maybe it's a problem you've dealt with over and over and you've become discouraged. We all face discouragement at times through our lives. Many things are true about discouragement. At least three of them, however, make it a powerful problem. First of all, discouragement is a dreadful problem because it's universal. In other words, discouragement strikes everyone. No one is immune. Even Christians, prophets, got discouraged. Both Moses and Elijah experienced discouragement. Remember when Elijah sat down under a juniper tree and said, It is enough. It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life. Preachers get discouraged. The prince of preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, suffered from terrible discouragement. Courageous national leaders such as Abraham Lincoln and Winston Churchill both suffered from discouragement. Anyone can suffer from discouragement. None of us are immune to discouragement. Everyone you have ever known has been discouraged at one time or another. Young or old, rich or poor, educated, uneducated, black or white, red or yellow, advantaged, disadvantaged, non-Christian, Christian, everyone gets discouraged. One characteristic that makes it such a problem is it's universal. Secondly, second characteristic is that it is reoccurring. Being discouraged one time does not give you immunity for life. I wish it did. You can be discouraged over and over again. In fact, you can even be discouraged by the fact that you are discouraged a lot. There is no antibody which can be injected to give you immunity. Discouragement comes and goes and comes back again. A third characteristic of discouragement is that it is highly contagious. Discouragement spreads by even casual contact. People can become discouraged because you're discouraged. In fact, if you're like me, you have been around people. If you're in their presence very long, you leave discouraged. I love the story that's told. You may be familiar with the story 
that's told about a man standing on a bridge prepared to jump to his death. A passerby comes along, stopped his car, attempted to talk some sense into this man. He asked the man why he was going to jump. And in his total discouragement, the man replied there were too many things wrong in his world to continue living. The passerby tried to reason with the man, saying that things weren't as bleak as they looked. And for 10 or 15 minutes, the conversation went on. And finally, they both jumped. I've been around some people that made you feel that way. Discouragement is contagious because discouragement can be such an insidious problem. Even among Christians, we should understand that the Bible has something to say about discouragement and what to do in dealing with it. So let's consider some of the causes of discouragement and some of the cures that are outlined in a passage of Scripture here in Nehemiah. You see, where God is at work, the enemy is also at work. Rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem was certainly no exception to this. Where God is at work, Satan stirs up agitators to attempt to block the work of God. I'm not sure we're not seeing that in our own country today. Verse 7 says, Now it happened that when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they they became very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and cause confusion. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to God, to our God, and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. It is <clears throat> amazing sometimes that all of the people of God, sometimes having have difficulty working together, The people of the world seem to have no problem uniting in opposition to the Lord's work. As we've seen before, Nehemiah still relies on prayer. But he does more than pray. To have prayed only would have been presumption. And to have watched only would have indicated a lack of faith. On one of D.L. Moody's trips across the Atlantic... A fire broke out in the hold of the ship. Moody and a friend joined the crew and other volunteers passing buckets of water to be thrown on the fire. The friend said to Moody, Mr. Moody, let's go over to the other side of the ship and pray. The common sense evangelist replied, no, sir, we will stand right here and pass buckets and pray hard all the same. Then I'd like for you to look at, in beginning in verse 10, the causes of discouragement. And Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing, and there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. And our adversaries said, they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So it was that when the Jews who dwelt near them came, they told us ten times, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. If we look closely, I think we discover at least four causes of the people's discouragement. First of all was fatigue. We might say a loss of strength. The strength of the bearers, in verse 10, of burdens is decayed. 
Nehemiah proclaims the strength of the people was decaying or failing, which literally means to stumble or stagger under the load. The people had been working long and hard, and now they're getting tired. The wall was at the halfway point. But by now, the new had worn off, and they were physically and mentally exhausted, and they were becoming discouraged. The strength of those who had been working was failing. The loss of strength takes both a physical and emotional toll on our bodies. So first of all, fatigue, a loss of strength. Secondly, frustration, a loss of vision. The second part of verse 10 says, and there is so much rubbish. Because of the loss of strength, they began to see things in a new light. They began to focus on what had not been accomplished, not what had been accomplished. And as they stood there, they saw the rubbish. What is this junk? The rubbish in your life might be things from your past, wrong thoughts, attitudes that you're unwilling to let go of. Or the rubbish may be simply the many trivial things that waste our time, consume our energy, spend our money. The junk or rubbish is simply anything which gets in our way, which keeps us from accomplishing the truly important goals in our lives. And the rubbish does one critical thing. It frustrates us. And that's why we need to deal with the rubbish in our lives. But we need first to understand that all this junk is a problem. The writer of the book of Hebrews reminds us saying, lay aside every weight and run the race before us. Fatigue, frustration, fear, loss of confidence that we are not able to build the wall. We are not able is the rallying cry of those who have taken their eyes off of the Lord and start looking at their problems and at themselves. In saying this, they are actually agreeing with the enemy. When one loses their strength and vision, they will soon be defeated. For where there is no confidence, there can be no defeat. At one time, the prophet had the people had a mind to work. Literally, it means they had a heart to work. But now, their confidence level was down and they had lost hurt, heart. Discouragement was settling in deeper and deeper. In the midst of physical exhaustion, loss of vision, and lack of confidence, the people were becoming unsure. And now they are looking over their shoulder because of fear. Some develop what's called a foxhole mentality. You see it in the example of King and David's brothers in 1 Samuel. As they faced the Philistines, it says, When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Sometimes we develop the grasshopper mentality. You saw that in the children of Israel as they come to the promised land and scope it out. The spies come back and they say that there we saw giants and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight and so we were in their sight. We can develop a woe is me mentality, which we see in Isaiah. 
He said, and I have become very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have <clears throat> forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword, and I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Now the, discour- the cure for discouragement, beginning in verse 13, first of all, he reorganizes their defense. Therefore, I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at openings, and I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. He stopped the work, and he gave them a reason to fight, saying, let's pull together to protect our families. Secondly, he redirected their focus to the Lord in verse 14. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the leaders and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight your brethren, your, fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your houses. He says, don't be afraid, remember the Lord. So Nehemiah encourages the people to trust in the Lord. This they are to do by remembering what the Lord has said. He says in Isaiah, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. In the New Testament, Paul said to the Philippians, Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus by remembering what the Lord has said, but also by remembering who the Lord is. When we face a situation which creates fear in our hearts, we must be reminded of the greatness of our God. We are called not to walk by sight, but by faith. And when we view God through our problems, we are doomed to failure. We have to turn that around. He, third rewarded balance he restored balance between fighting and building verse 15 and it happened when our enemies saw that it was known to us and that God had brought their counsel to nothing that all of us returned to the wall everyone to his work and so it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction while the other half of them held the spears and swords and bows and wore armor And the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. Those who built on the wall and those who carried the burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other hand held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his own sword girded to his side and so he built. And the one that sounded the trumpet was beside me. It's been said that some Christians do nothing but fight. Others never seem anything seem to find anything to fight for and both extremes are dangerous verse 19 he readied an assembly call he says then I said to the nobles and to the rulers and the rest of the people the work is great and extensive and we are separated far from one another on the wall therefore who wherever you are you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there our God will fight for us This speaks of both a place and a principle. The place was wherever the trumpet sounded from. The principle is we don't fight alone. It is the lone sheep 
that is in the most danger. The knowledge that God will fight for his people was the means of the security that these people had been lacking. Then he re-engaged them in serving one another. It says in verse 21, so we labored in the work. Half of the men held the spears from daylight until the stars appear. And at the same time, I also said to the people, let each man and his servant stay at night in Jerusalem, that they may be our guard by night and working party by day. And so neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off their clothes, except that everyone put them off for washing. Basically, he's saying to get busy helping others. If you want to be miserable, then live only for yourself. Charles Swindoll said it well when he wrote, Retirement in America means don't bother me. I have no time for others. He says, I suggest an alternative. Just think of the ministry of encouragement God could give you when he releases you through retirement from the workaday world and uses you as a servant. Well, from, we, from this text, we <clears throat> should learn to expect opposition, even when we're doing God's will. We have learned to develop positive responses to opposition through prayer and our identification with God and His purposes. And we've learned to persevere with the task at hand. Faith is what makes the difference. It was faith that allowed Nehemiah to face opposition and to prevail. His faith gave him confidence. His confidence inspired others. The secret of his success can also be ours as well. As the Apostle John pointed out, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. As we look back at those techniques that Nehemiah used to overcome discouragement among the people, we should note that they're just as valuable today. Although discouragement is universal and reoccurring and contagious, it may not be terminal. Let's pull together as families. Let's redirect our attention to the Lord. Let's work for balance in our lives. Let's remember that we are not in this alone, and let's look for opportunities to serve others. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that you give us encouragement in the midst of opposition to know that you are with us and that you tell us how we can have victory even in the midst of difficulty and opposition. Help us to really take those truths to heart so that we might not only apply them in our own lives, but that we might use them to help others who are themselves going through difficult times. Father, we thank you for this time that we can gather in your house. We thank you for the freedom that we have to worship together. We ask, Lord, you bless this time of invitation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.